0: You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. But hey, as we, we gather for worship on Easter, I think one of the things that's really, really important, I think... Uh, probably maybe one of the most important questions that any of us can answer for our lives. Maybe even the thing that's the most important about who we are as individuals is how do you answer the question, who is Jesus? I think there's no better question to ask as we gather on Resurrection Sunday than who do you think Jesus is? Not who does your grandma think Jesus is, not who do your parents think Jesus is, not who do your friends think Jesus is, but who do you think? believe Jesus is? And see, the reason I think that's such an interesting question is because ever since Jesus entered the scene, ever since Jesus entered human history and was born in a manger in Bethlehem, every single person on the face of the planet has wrestled with this question of who do we believe that Jesus is? Some people thought he was just a really great teacher. Some people thought he was a miracle worker, a healer. There's some people that thought that maybe he was a prophet, like the prophets of old, like Elijah. There's some people that even believed that he was the Messiah. They thought that he was going to come and overthrow... miracle worker or a healer. The problem with Jesus even just being a prophet or a political figure is that when Jesus died on the cross, that meant the teacher had taught his last lesson. It means that the miracle worker was done performing miracles, and it means the healer couldn't even heal himself. It means that the Messiah, who may have been a prophet, was just like the prophets of old, that they had been stoned and killed in silence, and there was no more prophecy come, and if he was a political figure, how in the world would Jesus deliver the entire nation of Israel from Rome if he couldn't deliver himself from a Roman cross? Who do you believe Jesus is? See, the days after Jesus was crucified on the cross were dark days, especially for those who loved Jesus, for those who gave everything to follow Jesus and be with Jesus, For those that really believed and trusted and put their confidence in him, Friday and Saturday were dark days, hopeless days, days of despair, no rest, no sleep, just torment and agony and wrestling. In fact, one of the things I love about Scripture, one of the things that I think proves that the resurrection is real, I think one of the things that points to the truth of Scripture is that as we read through the narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we look through the gospel writers, one of the things that's so interesting is nobody was expecting a resurrection. Nobody was on Saturday going, hey guys, just hold up a little bit longer because we know what's going to happen on Sunday. And here's the thing, right? If it were you or me, if we were writing the story, wouldn't we write ourselves in as the hero of the story? Like, wouldn't we write ourselves in and say, hey, yeah, Peter forgot, and John forgot, and Mark forgot, and Mary forgot, but I didn't. Like, I just tented out in front of the tomb because I knew on Sunday he was going to come back, but nobody expected a resurrection. Every single person who loved Jesus and followed Jesus would fill with doubt and despair. In the process of Jesus being arrested and beaten, Peter even goes as far to deny Jesus three times as he's being interrogated by a middle school girl. Most of the believers and once followers in Jesus had scattered from Jerusalem. They went into hiding. Most of them had forgotten the words of Jesus, and most of them were scared for their lives. If they killed Jesus, then maybe we're next. And so I love how Luke tells us the truth, and he gives us... The story of the resurrection, if you want to pay attention to Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. It says, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. Now this is important. Because when Jesus was hung and crucified on the cross on Good Friday, the Sabbath was coming. So there's all kinds of rules against the Sabbath. And if you remember the scriptures, that, that what happens is, is the Pharisees and the Sadducees were involved in the death of Jesus. And the Roman government was involved in the death of Jesus. And so what happens is, is on Saturday, nobody could do anything. And so on Good Friday, there's a guy named Joseph who is in a favor of the Roman government. And most scholars would tell you he bribed people to get Jesus' body because it was actually against the law to bury the body of someone who had been crucified. What the scriptures tell us is that he goes to them and he gets Jesus' body and literally they just kind of throw Jesus into a tomb. They wrap him up, put him in a tomb and seal the tomb because the Sabbath is coming where they're not allowed to do any work. And so this act is an act of love. This act is an act of, of final obedience, saying, hey, we know the body wasn't prepared the right way. We know that Jesus wasn't laid to rest in the right way. And so as the women go to the tomb, they're going to do that one final thing to say, let's make sure that Jesus can rest in peace. Let's sure that, make sure that we show our love by honoring the way we bury him and do what we need to do so they come with the spices and the, that they had prepared. The scripture says, But on the first day at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And when they found the stalled, rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now this is crazy, right? Because as the women go to the tomb, what we also know is that there's a whole Roman garrison stationed in front of Jesus' tomb. That The nation of Rome was worried that people might try to come steal Jesus' body. They were worried that there might be people revolting, that there might be battles forming there. So they put a garrison, a whole platoon of Roman soldiers at the tomb. And so when they come to the tomb, it's open. When they come to the tomb, there's no more... Roman guards, when they come to the tomb, it's empty. And I love what Luke says in Luke chapter 24, verse 4. And he says, and they were perplexed about this. That they came to the tomb and, and, and there wasn't rejoicing and celebrating. There was the scratching of heads. There's a, this, this is where we buried them, right? I mean, this was the spot. This was the tomb. Like, what, what is going on? What is happening here? This is why they were perplexed about this. Behold, two men stood them in dazzling apparel. Angels. Angels appeared to the women. And we know they're angels because Luke chapter 24, verse 5 says, and they were frightened and they bowed their faces to the ground. That is these what appeared to be men in dazzling white clothes appeared. They knew to bow. They knew something holy was happening. And I love what the angel says. Why do you seek the living among the dead? You're looking for Jesus, right? So why would you come to the place he was buried? Why would you seek Jesus who was alive among the dead? He isn't here, but he is risen. And remember, remember how he told you. I love that Luke says in Luke chapter 24 verse 6, remember how he told you that we can trust the word of God, that everything that Jesus says is the truth and is good for us. Remember what he told you? While he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna And Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these worms seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I love this. The women come back from the tomb, have seen an empty tomb, seeing the claws that Jesus was wrapped in empty, seeing angels appear before them. Now just imagine the kind of excitement, imagine the atmosphere, imagine the tone of their voice and they come back, guys, guys, we went to his tomb, Jesus is alive, he's not there, the stone was rolled away and it says the guys who had been Jesus, with Jesus the longest, the guys who loved Jesus were like, we don't believe you. Like, that, that seems like a fairy tale. That, that seems like some sort of story you're, you're just telling us to kind of lift our spirit and they did not believe them. Verse 12, but Peter, Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. to But one of the things that's true about those first followers of Jesus is that the single most defining moment in the life of the disciples is that the moment they realize that the Jesus they love The Jesus that they saw crucified, the Jesus that they saw dead, the Jesus that they saw buried is also the Jesus who is now alive and risen on the third day. In fact, not only was this event the single most defining moment in their lives, it became the single most thing that defined their lives. That the disciples, who now we call the apostles, didn't go around saying, hey, I I am one, I am a student of the teacher. They didn't go around saying, hey, we have seen his miracles and we've seen his healings they didn't even go around saying hey we've heard his preaching and we've heard his truth that they didn't put jesus for president bumper stickers on the back of their donkey cart the single most defining thing that they use to explain their life their belief their existence and their mission is this jesus is alive jesus is risen In fact, every single apostle would then call themselves witnesses of the resurrection. They would say, the reason we do what we do, the reason we preach what we preach, the reason that we face being thrown in prison, the reason that we have people throw stones at us, people want to throw us in prison, some of us even get murdered, the reason we never back down, never give up, never lose hope, is because he once was dead, but now he is alive. And see, guys like Matthew and Mark, And Luke, and John, and Peter, all say we witnessed this thing. And it's not just us that witnessed this thing, but there were others, guys like Paul, who once started in opposition of Jesus, started in opposition of the movement of Jesus, says, hey, there's this thing that happened in my life that changed everything. I know he was crucified. I know he was dead and buried. But I saw him, and he was alive. Now, I want to make this a little bit personal for those of us that have siblings in the room. If you don't have a sibling, just think about maybe a really good friend. But what would it take for you to be convinced that one of your siblings was God in the flesh? For real. Because one of the the evidences of the resurrection that I think is so true is that James, the half-brother of Jesus, James, who wasn't a fan of Jesus, didn't believe in Jesus, didn't follow in Jesus while he was alive on the earth, but after the resurrection, after James saw Jesus alive, he believed in his big brother, that he really was who he says he was. He wasn't just that he was mama's favorite, it's that he really was the Messiah. He really was God in the flesh. And see, every year around Easter time, people like to push back and give all kinds of conspiracies and things they think happened. reasons that the tomb was empty and it shouldn't be. And one of those reasons that people will give is they say, hey, the disciples snuck in and stole Jesus' body. Like somehow Peter took on a Roman garrison, right? Like somehow these 12 got together and took over a whole guys who were special ops trained and got the tomb emptied and somehow hid Jesus' body. And for me, one of the most compelling evidences that the resurrection account is true comes from a guy named Chuck Colson. Uh, Chuck Colson was not a believer, but at one point he was one of the most powerful people in America that he served as a special advisor to President Nixon. And if you do a little bit of study, if you go and do a little bit of research or read his life story, this was his title. He was called a special counsel to the president but President Nixon called him the hatchet. Like, see, I think that's awesome. Like, if that was my nickname from a president, I'd put that on everything. That would be on my resume. It would be my license plate. I would probably tattoo it on my arm. Hi, what, what do you do? Hi, my name's Adam. Uh, what should I call you? Oh, the president calls me the hatchet. So that'll work. And what Chuck Colson says is this, because what happened is Chuck Colson, along with a group of people, were involved in a scandal called Watergate. And Watergate's not the point of the message, but just something to think about. Watergate happened, and Richard Nixon resigned from the presidency, and I think it just shows how morally we've drifted, because now stuff like this happens, and we don't even care. And Chuck Colson was one of the guys that was actually called part of the Watergate 7, that they broke into a building, and they stole stuff, and they covered it up, and this is what he says. Chuck Colson later becomes a believer and says this. He says, I know that the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years. Never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, or put in prison. They would not have endured that if it, wouldn't, if it was not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful people in the nation. And those men couldn't hold a lie for three weeks. He goes on to say, you're telling me these 12 disciples held that lie for 40 years and never gave up, never gave in, even under persecution? Chuck Colson says, I find that to be impossible. I don't think they stole the body. I think the tomb was empty in fact we know from history that the resurrection occurred that there's all kinds of historians that would tell us the history of how leaders and nations and political figures would respond to the empty tomb like one of the people that gives the most credibility to the resurrection is this guy named nero who's a roman and how much he goes to defend people against the empty tomb the extent he goes to to persecute Christians, the extent he goes to to shut this thing down. And if it wasn't true, why did he put all the work into it? That historically we know the resurrection is true. In fact, there's a guy named Paul Altheus who says the interesting thing about the resurrection is this, is that the good news of Jesus' resurrection was proclaimed in the same exact city where Jesus had been crucified three days earlier. And he goes on to say this. He says, The resurrection proclamation could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day or for a single hour if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. Because listen, the good news would have got shut down in a day. The minute the guys go, hey, the tomb's empty, that if the tomb wasn't empty, but it's right there. That's where Jesus is. In fact, one of the most convincing pieces of evidence. One of the most convincing things that points to an empty tomb is simply the fact that no one knows where the tomb of Jesus is. In fact, if you were to hire a tour guide and fly to Jerusalem today, they would take you to a place where they think maybe, might have, could have been Jesus' tomb. But nobody knows for sure. And see, the reason that's so interesting is because every religious figure who dies and is buried... Their tomb is eventually enshrined. And I just want to show you a couple of evidences of this this morning. The first we'll talk about is Abraham. You know Father Abraham who had many sons? Many sons had Father Abraham and I'm one of them and so are you. You know that guy? He's buried at a place called the Cave of the Patriarchs. So here's what happens. Abraham dies dead and buried. They enshrine the tomb and eventually somebody says, let's build a great big building. So we can celebrate and remember and treasure up Father Abraham. Uh, And the Cave of the Patriarchs is in Hebron, not Hebron, Illinois, okay, but it's in Hebron. And you can go there, you can visit, and they can go to the exact spot. They'd say right here is where Abraham is buried. In fact, the Muslims believe in this guy, Muhammad, the prophet. And Muhammad is dead and buried, and they build this thing over the spot. He doesn't have a tomb, he has a city. I mean, he has the huge building that's called the Mosque of the Prophet, and you can go and take tours and see the exact spot. They would say, here is the body of Muhammad, who's placed before you to worship. In fact, this one blows my mind. guy named Buddha, who you know about Buddha if you've ever eaten at a Chinese buffet because they have a statue of him somewhere in there, and he's a Chubby, happy guy. I tend to like him. We look very similar. But there's this guy named Buddha. And here's what happened. Buddha, okay, Buddha dies. And because he's such a holy man, they're not sure what to do with him, so they cremate him. And then they take the pieces that are left over, some of the ashes and some of the stuff that doesn't make it all the way, and they spread them as relics all over the place. So the building that you see there is called the Temple of of the tooth what do you think's in the building one tooth like buddha gets one tooth and he gets a building and you can go all over the world and there's like the temple of the elbow we think i mean like this this, i want you to capture this okay now here's the thing one more thing i just want to for those of you that are skeptical i just want to show you that like this isn't just feel good emotional yay jesus alive there is evidence there is proof there are things to consider so Jesus doesn't have a tomb, but you know, Peter does. Peter dies, the guy that followed Jesus. Peter, that the only reason we still talk about his name today is because he chose to follow Jesus. Peter, the fisherman, dies and is buried. And the Catholic Church builds this building over his grave. It's called St. Peter's Basilica. It is awesome. It is beautiful. I hope to see it someday. And in case you never get there, in case I never get there, I'll show you this next slide. Right there under this big, wooden, beautiful structure, that's where St. Peter is buried. Now, here's the thing. If you go to Jerusalem, you hire a really great tour guide. They'll take you all over the place and show you all kinds of things. And eventually, they'll say, hey, do you want to go see Jesus' tomb? Maybe, we think, kind of, and here it is. They'll take you to this place that's called the Garden Tomb. And what they'll tell you goes, hey, by our best estimation, by our best guess, from all the history and, you know, from all that we can think, like we, we know some places for sure, but this is where we think that Jesus maybe kind of was buried. And you know why? Because Jesus used a tomb like we use a prom tuxedo. He only borrowed it for a couple days. The reason it was never enshrined is because once he rose, nobody went back. There was no reason to adore it. There was no reason to to enshrine it. There was no reason to venerate it. There was no reason to put up monuments and flowers and for people to camp out there because Jesus was there and then he wasn't. He was dead and he was buried and then he was alive. And the reason that this is so important is because the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. Because only a resurrected Jesus can resurrect your life and my life. Only the resurrected King can resurrect your brokenness and my brokenness. Only the resurrected Messiah can bring you and I from death back to life. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians says this about the fact that Jesus is alive. He says, For I delivered to you is of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins accordance with the scriptures, that he was dead and buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Cephas is just another great word for Peter. And he goes, Listen, the thing that's the most important, like we tend to make Christianity so complicated. But we try to make this thing so multifaceted, and Paul goes, you want to know what the most important thing is? He was alive, he was dead, he was buried, and then he rose from the grave. It's the most important thing. It's a top priority. You want to know one thing about Jesus? You want to use one word to describe Jesus? It's this. He's risen, and no one else has pulled that off. No one else has ever come back from the grave. Like, you've never gone to a funeral where somebody got up and said, hey, thanks for coming, but let's go party. It's never happened because it's only Jesus that conquered death. It's only Jesus that robbed the grave. It's only Jesus who rose victorious on the third day. You see, Paul says it's so important for us to know because if Jesus is risen, then it means he is who he says he is. It means he really is the unique son of God. It means he really is the Messiah. It really means that he is God in the flesh. It really means that he is the only one that can forgive us of our sins. It means he is the only one that can conquer Satan's sin and death. It means that if he is alive, then he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our fellowship. What Paul says is that if Jesus really is alive, then we can have in fact, he says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, just a little bit later. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and your sins, and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's Paul's saying, if Jesus didn't raise, then there's nothing to live for. There's no hope. There's no guarantee, there's no assurance, there's no salvation, there's no forgiveness, and there's not even a heaven. He says, if Jesus didn't come back, then just pity us. But if he did come back, if Jesus really is alive, then it's worthy of your consideration, it's worthy of your praise, it's worthy of your acceptance. And see, a resurrection changes everything because if Jesus is alive then it means he can do what he said he can do if Jesus overcame the cross if Jesus overcame death if Jesus overcame the tomb it means that a resurrected Jesus really can forgive our sins and reunite us with God and i know those aren't really like popular words like you probably don't go around outside of like church using the word sin but the reality is the scripture says that every single one of us deals with sin it says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It also says that the wages of sin is death. And see, here's how every single one of us knows deep down that this is true. Because every single one of us, if we were really, really honest, if we really kind of pulled back the curtain of our lives, we would admit that every single one of us, in some way, at some point in our lives, had been plagued by the desire to be good enough. Maybe in your life you tried to be good enough to get the attention and the affection of your parents, but you just felt like you could never get it. You tried to be good enough to get your peers and the people around you to like you, but you just felt like you'd never be good enough for some people to give you that attention and that affection. Then maybe you met somebody that you hoped would one day be Mr. or Mrs. Wright, but you just felt like, I have to be good enough. I have to somehow look the right way and talk the right way and dress the right way and if I'm not good enough then how could I ever approach or say because we all feel like we need to be good enough and if we're right like if we're just being totally honest we'd admit that deep in our hearts we wonder if we could ever be good enough for God. So for some of us we just feel like we could never be good enough so we just don't even try. For some of us we know we're not good enough so we try to get religious and be good. And see, here's what I want you to think about for a second, because maybe you've been hurt by the church. Maybe, maybe you've just heard this so many times that you're just numb to it. Maybe you think that this is kind of like the Easter bunny and the, the tooth fairy. It's just a tale to you. But here's the thing. You know where that desire comes from? You know where that feeling of not being good enough comes from? You know why it's universal that every single one of us feels that way, whether you live uh, at the very bottom of the economy or you live in the palace at the top? You know why we all feel that way? It's a universal struggle. It's because it's a side effect of sin. That every single one of us, there's something broken in us that God never intended for to be broken in us. But because sin separates, because sin destroys, because sin hurts, what happens is the way that we feel sin, I believe the greatest, is deep down inside of us we feel broken like we're never good enough for the people around us. Because come on, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve live in the beautiful garden. Everything is perfect, no sin, no sickness, no death, just beauty and life. And like, let's be honest, it had to be perfect because they were running around naked. And then sin enters the world. Adam and Eve rebel against God. They make friends with Satan. They decide their way is better than God's way. And they eat the one thing that's forbidden. You know the first emotions they had? The first thoughts they had? I have to cover myself up. And you know why they felt like they had to cover themselves up? Because immediately they went, I'm not good enough. I feel a little bit of shame. I feel a little bit of guilt. I can't be vulnerable in front of this person. This is a husband and a wife where they go, hey, I can't be vulnerable and exposed. I can't be who I really am. And they feel shame. And you know what else they feel? They feel like they have to hide from God. The very God that created them, the very God that has given them all things, the very God that the Scripture says they walked together in the garden. God shows up and you know what they do? They hide from Him. because They don't feel good enough because there's brokenness, because there's sinfulness, because there's separation. And see, every single one of us, ever since sin entered the world, we've been working so hard, toiling, struggling, putting all kinds of energy into being good enough. And the reality is, I'll just say you don't have to, every single one of us, if we were honest, we lay our heads in bed at night, and you know who we're still not good enough for? ourselves and see what happens is we get convinced that like we need to become better versions of ourselves and so we become like cell phone manufacturers where there's adam 1.0 and then 2.0 and then 3.0 and like now we're onto the iphone 7 right and we just keep trying to be better versions of ourselves but the problem is at the end of the day we still feel broken and at the end of the day we still don't feel good enough and friends that's the beauty of the gospel is that the resurrected, risen Jesus says to you, and he says to me, stop trying to be good enough. Stop trying to be a better version of yourself. Let me save you. Let me put the pieces back together. Let me reconnect you with God. Let me bring out the inner glory that comes in Christ alone. Let me make you not a better version, but let me make you new. Let me make you something completely different love the way Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 22. He says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self that is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The reason we celebrate the resurrection, the reason we need this every single day of our lives is because the gospel is that Jesus died in your place for your sins and rose on the third day victorious. Victorious over Satan, victorious over sin, victorious over death, so that you and I can be fully forgiven, fully loved, and fully accepted by God. And you know what happens when our sin is taken away? I think what the Bible says is that we truly begin to live, maybe for the first time, when our sin issue is dealt with, that we begin to understand the love that God has for us. We can begin to love people and even begin to love ourselves. In fact, I think only a resurrected Jesus can give us what Jesus offered, and that's life and life to the full. Do you know what happens when sin dies? Our lives begin to thrive. It means that I'm no longer defined by my past and the things that I've done. It means my value is not given to me. It means my value is not dependent about what people around me think about me. It means I don't have to live my life trying to be successful, earning awards and trophies and the applause of people. Jesus says in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But he says, I come, Jesus comes, that we may have life and have it abundantly. You know what happens when I'm no longer defined by my past? It means I begin to live in the reality that I am a blood-bought, fully loved, fully accepted child of God. It means the things that I've done in my past don't define my future Jesus does. That nobody gets to define me by the things I did in junior high. Jesus gets to define me by the things he did on the cross for my sins. It means my value doesn't come from people. It means I'm valuable because I'm created in the image and the likeness of God and there is intrinsic worth inside every single one of us because the fingerprint of God is on every single one of us. You know what happens when I stop trying to be successful and earn trophies and awards and the validation of people? You know what, what happens is when we begin to understand that we're not striving for victory. We're not striving for, some, for success. When we begin to live the life that Jesus gives life to the full, it means everything I do comes from a place of victory. That I'm not striving for victory. I already have victory, and Jesus is my victory. I live in the victory that He achieved for me in my place when He died and when He rose again. Abundant life is about having peace. Peace with God and peace from God. Abundant life is about having hope, even when there's things to be afraid of. Abundant life is about having God. And because God is with us, he'll never leave us or forsake us. It means we can be strong and immovable and work hard, knowing that nothing, nothing in our lives is in vain. That everything has purpose, everything has meaning, everything is significant, even. Our suffering, that even on the worst day, that God is at work for our good and for our glory. See, the last thing this morning is only a resurrected Jesus can give me a secure future. Like, if you watch the news at night, which I tend not to do because it just freaks me out. Like every time you turn on the news, it's the economy's going to crash. We're going to end up in war. Things are bad, bad, bad. Things are down, down, down. You should be afraid, afraid, afraid. But see, a resurrected king can offer me security that I'll never find in this world. A resurrected Jesus offered me security that I'll never find in this life on this planet. It means our security isn't found in the stock market. It means our security is not found in our economy our security is not in the size of our retirement package. Our security is not in the size of our friends list on Facebook and the people that follow us on Twitter. It means that our security is not found in our employment status. It means that our, our security is not found in the size of our home, our type of insurance, or how much money currently is or is not in the bank account. See, a resurrected king offers us security in him. That our security is found in the very heart and nature of God. King David says it this way in the book of Psalm, chapter 47. He says, God is our refuge and our strength, our very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble in the swelling. David goes, even if this whole world starts falling apart, he goes, he's my refuge. David in the book of Psalms would use words like this to describe his relationship with God. He'd say, God is my refuge, he's my strength, he's my strong tower, he's my mighty fortress, he is my hiding place in the storm. One of the truths of the resurrection is that Jesus came and lived and dies and rose again in order that he might rule and reign as the king above kings, the name above all names, and to rule people who could live lives that are anxiety-free. Jesus did not invite us into the kingdom so that we could worry. Jesus did not invite us into his kingdom so we could be afraid. He didn't invite us into the kingdom so we could be filled with anxiety. It's the exact Opposite, that Jesus says, if you will let me rule and if you will let me reign and if you will believe in me, then even your security is found in me. It means that Jesus, our resurrected king, is greater than our situation. It means he's greater than our sickness. It means he's greater than our fear. In fact, he's more than greater. It means he rules and he reigns and he has control and power over it. It means the very thing that you're worried about this morning kneels at the feet of Jesus because he rules and he reigns over it. It means that no matter how hard this life gets, that this life is as close to hell as you and I as believers will ever get. It only gets better from here. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. He says, in this world you will have tribulation. That's a great big word to say, trouble. He says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus goes, you'll struggle in this world, but don't forget the whole world is still in my hands. Friends, the resurrection changes everything. And only a resurrected Jesus can change your life and change my life. And so we finish up where we began. Who do you believe Jesus is? Because every single journey has a starting point. And at Redemption Church, we say it this way. We think faith is a journey and not a guilt trip. And so what we do is we just invite people to go on the journey. And see, what I think is the resurrection is an invitation. I think the resurrection is a starting point. That Jesus says that the resurrection reminds us that he is who he says he is. That it's not just a tale, that he wasn't just a teacher, a healer, a miracle worker, a prophet. He wasn't just some political figure, but he really is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he is risen. When Luke wanted to summarize everything they believed about Jesus, he used one word and it was this. Resurrection. Resurrection. Tell me everything you believe. He died, and he's alive. Why do you do what you do? Because he died and he's alive. How come you have no fear? Because he died and he was alive. How is it that you hold on to hope, even when there's things to be afraid of, because Jesus died and now he's alive? See, the resurrection is an invitation for us to believe, for us to receive, and for us to enjoy the goodness, the forgiveness, the security, and the salvation of Jesus Christ, who died in our place for our sins. And rose again, and I want to give you that opportunity today. And for those of you that are here, that you've already made that decision, you've already put your faith in Jesus, then it's just an opportunity to celebrate, just an opportunity to dig in, just an opportunity to blow the roof off this place and say, "Jesus is my God, who died in my place for my sin, and He rose again. And in Him is my hope, and my trust, and my security." Because friends, He is risen. Let me pray for you. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois, where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week, but in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.